welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Tonight we come to the third and final week of our series we have entitled Our Christian Hope. We have taken time to remind ourselves of the great hope that we have as Christians even when it doesn't seem like it in the situation and the circumstances that we find ourselves. That this thing called hope is mentioned over 180 times in the, in the Bible, and faith and hope go together. We have faith that we believe in a God who will answer prayer and move, and we have a hope that he will do far more than we can ever imagine or hope for. We took time to look at the life of Jesus through first century eyes primarily, to see how the unraveling of the majesty and the awesomeness of Jesus took place. And we looked at the baptism. We looked at the time in the desert when he was challenged by the enemy, by Satan himself. And then we looked at some of his healings. So with next Sunday being Pentecost Sunday, I want to look at the Holy Spirit tonight and unpack just in part some incredible truths about the Holy Spirit that I believe that will speak into our hope as Christians. And for the sake of time tonight and to achieve all that we, well, I'd like to in the next 30 minutes or so, I want us to agree that volume one has come to an end in the sense that Jesus has come, he's fulfilled his earthly ministry, he has died and he has ascended, volume one. So now we go into volume two, where Jesus says, for you to accomplish all that I have purposed for you, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. You really need the Holy Spirit more than you need me in order to accomplish the plans that I have. And so we go into volume two. And I wanna start by making a statement that I will come back to time and time again as we unpack this message. I wanna start by saying that the Holy Spirit is on our side far more than we can ever dare to believe. The Holy Spirit is on your side and my side far more than we can imagine or understand. Pentecostalism is the fastest growing stream in Christianity today, but it is not as distinct, it is not as different as it was when many of us, especially of my generation, were growing up. In years gone by, everybody knew who was a Pentecostal. Everybody knew what Pentecost was, and there was such a difference. But thankfully, that distinction is not there so much because other streams have picked up on the whole area of Pentecost and charismatic, that the distinction has been lost. I remember my parents telling me when they were first in a Pentecostal church in the late 40s and early 50s, and especially through the rest of the 50s, that they were ridiculed for being Pentecostal. They were ridiculed for being Pentecostal. People poked fun at them for being Pentecostal and saying that they believed these things. And the ridicule did not come from non-Christians. It came from other mainline Christian denominations that they were riddled for saying that they were Pentecostals. The heartbeat of those who would themselves call themselves charismatic or Pentecostal is the, the love of the Spirit. Of course, we honor and we love the Father, and we love and we worship and we cherish Jesus. But since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and then major outpourings in the early 20th century, 
there has become a renewed and invigorated emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And friends, just to say, I believe that as we go through tonight, the reality of the Holy Spirit in our life is far more indescribable and magnificent than words will ever allow us to communicate. But I believe that in saying that, there is a challenge therein that some of us are losing the expectation of encountering the Holy Spirit on a regular basis for whatever that may be. More, I, I, I spend an alarming amount of time with people who don't really believe that God really wants to speak to them, that they seem to be so caught up in life, whether it's through busyness or just the pressure and stress, that there seems to be, man, does God really speak to me? Some of it can come out of inadequacy or some of it can come out of just the, the sense of failure that is upon their life. So what do we do with this difference in theology and experience? And it's a good question to ask, why is there, there seems to be this breakdown? And as we get into tonight, I want to offer a couple of suggestions to start with. For example, where exactly does the Holy Spirit fit in our thinking? Where does the Holy Spirit think, uh, sit, I should say, really in our Christian worldview? We, cannot, we can articulate really well what the Father does. We read most of that about in the Old Testament, and we know that he sent Jesus. We can articulate extremely well what the Father does. And the Son, well, the Bible's packed full of what the Son does. We see the Jesus in the Old Testament, and then, of course, we see Jesus in the Gospels, and then, we, of course, we see Jesus at the end. We clearly know, and it is recorded for us, not so much about the role of the Holy Spirit. We know that he came on the day of Pentecost. We know that he plays an active role in the gifts. We know that he plays an active role in the fruits of the Spirit, and we know that he speaks to us, but after that, it gets a little bit muddy. You have some people say, oh, the Holy Spirit talks to me, and they just think, gosh, if that's what the Holy Spirit says, I don't think I want to hear or have much to do with him. And things start to become incredibly subjective. Growing up in South Wales, as I did, we used to sing a chorus, and probably many of you are way too young to, to remember it. But we used to sing a chorus, and it said, Jesus, our Father, we worship and adore you repeated that, then it had a climax. The second verse was, Jesus, we worship and adore you. And then we came to the third verse and it said, Spirit, we worship and adore you. And a lot of people didn't know whether that was the right thing to do. Were we theologically on sound, ground, sound footage? Do we worship the Spirit? Are we supposed to praise Him? What is all that about? And also, there is that lurking suspicion that the Spirit functions as something of the servant of God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son. The one that comes to live in us and be with us is one that has been sent by the Father and the Son. He is the ambassador. He is the, the sent one. So where does he really fit? Friends, when Jesus and the Father send the Spirit, this is not a statement about the lowest status of the Spirit who is somehow subservient to the other two, but it is a remarkable statement to the, about the commitment of the Godhead to you and I. They, the Godhead, the Trinity, the triune God, are so committed to each and every one of us sitting in this room tonight 
and everyone across the world who claims the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord, they are so committed that they have sent one of their own. They've not sent a substitute. They've not sent an angel. They have so committed to us that they have sent one of their own. The Spirit of God, who is exactly equal and as powerful as God the Father and God the Son, is the one that has been sent to take care of each and every one of us as we work out our salvation here on earth. I am somewhat concerned when I talk with people that he can be marginalized, the Holy Spirit can be marginalized in the day-to-day aspect of our lives. How do we address him? You know, in the New Testament, Paul calls him the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Spirit of God. He calls him the Spirit of Christ, just to mention three and there are more. When I was growing up, this is gonna show my age, we used to call him the Holy Ghost. And that used to really spook me. I had a mother and father who told me, you don't get involved with that that sort of stuff. You don't get involved with the supernatural. You don't do all the horror things. And then I went to church and all I heard about was the Holy Ghost. I was confused, if not spooked, more than a young lad should have been. You know, when we pray to God the Father, we know we come before our Heavenly Father, we come to Jesus. But what we really call the Holy Spirit, actually, very often the, the word for the Spirit is transferred translated, I should say, as wind, actually, it's a closer to breeze. That's what it really, really means. This doesn't really make it much easier, does it? I don't really fancy waking up in the morning and saying, dear breeze, be with me today. It sounds like a physical ailment, doesn't it? But what exactly is his role in our lives? For much of my early years, I felt that the Spirit was in my life to chase me down when I had done something wrong and give me a good slap. That was his job, that he was all about discipline. And I'm sure that he had every reason to chase me down and give me a good slap. You know, I even had scripture for it. Psalm 139 was my go-to psalm when I felt that the Holy Spirit was chasing me down because it talks in there that if you go to the mountaintop, he'll get you. If you go down into the, into the waters, he'll be there. It's like the hound of heaven is going to chase Chris Jones down and give him a good kick in because he's always messing up. But how foolish was I? And if I'd only read the rest of Psalm 139, I would have discovered that the Holy Spirit, that when he does find us, he protects us and he upholds us with his righteous right hand. And he will be there for us and that he will help us and support us. And that gives us an insight into his role tonight. But the Holy Spirit whilst he is involved in the disciplinary process, is fundamentally on our side. He is our hope. He is in our lives to do good to us before he does good to other people. So often we think that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives so that he can empower us to do something for other people. That's the wrong way around. First of all, first and foremost, he comes into our lives to affirm us and be with us. And then he may choose to use us to bless other people, but it's important that we don't get it the wrong way around. Sometimes as charismatics, as Pentecostals, we've emphasized that the Holy Spirit comes upon us or is in us so that we can do good to other people, that we can help. Yes, but that is second. The first is that he is there to affirm us. He is on our side because the Holy Spirit is much more intrinsically and strategically involved in creating our destinies, 
creating the people who we once were into the people who we will be far more than we will ever really acknowledge or realize. The challenge as Christians, I believe, is to realize that he wants to engage with us far more than we ever really think that's possible. That he wants to engage with us. He wants to encounter us on a, on a daily, on a regular basis. And that he wants to create a destiny for us. And that our hope is not in the circumstances around us or how we feel good. But our hope is in the fact that we have a Holy Spirit who is on our side and will take care of us. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we need to grasp that he is more than a force, but primarily, he is a good friend. I understand when we, when we um, say, Holy Spirit, we welcome you, and when we're in worship, I understand the theology of that. I understand why we do it or why it has been done, done through the years. But I think that we need to reacquaint ourselves with, first and foremost, that he is a friend, and not just a giver of power, and not just someone that wants to be in our midst corporately. First and foremost, he is a friend who stands by us. You know, like tonight we would sing, Holy Spirit, we worship you, and we welcome you. Holy Spirit came in with you tonight as your friend. He was with you. He's been with you. There wasn't a time when he wasn't. And when we corporately come together, yes, that he will do things. Friends, we need to see him first and foremost as a friend, and not just simply as a resource, not just simply a force to be welcomed, but his identity is a friend. He is not someone who energetically necessarily moves in our lives. He is someone who stands alongside us as an advocate. The word that is used, very familiar word, most of us will know it, the word that is used in the Greek is that called paraclete. And it literally means para and clete. One, a spirit that stands alongside Tonight, the Holy Spirit's primary role is to stand alongside you. If he enforces, if he gives you power and moves upon you to help other people, wonderful. But his primary function is to be there standing alongside for you as your advocate. He says, I'm calling myself alongside and you put your name in there. That's his primary role. Everything else, great, but secondary to what his role as an advocate is. He's not simply there to pump us up. He's there to say, I'm your friend. And I want to get to know you. I said this morning, one of the things that I have started to do every morning is when I get into the car, first thing I do when I get up in the morning is make myself a cup of tea, get myself awake, and then I do some stuff around the house. And then I come to work. First thing I do, start the car, start the journey. And you may just think, gosh, he's a crackpot, but hey. But four or five years, I've got into the habit of turning to the passenger seat. And in my mind, and in my worship to God, imagining that the Holy Spirit is there, and say to me, and say to him, are we okay? Are we okay? And I know that that starts a dialogue and a conversation between him and me throughout the day. And situations comments that I've made, some good, mostly dumb, things that I've said or thought will come to my mind and I think, oh, I need to think about that, or I need to apologize about that, and are we okay? As I said, I've been married over 30 years now, and the first response that my wife gives to me is not a lie, but it's not always the truth. You know, guys, if you're married and you say to your wife, are you okay? And they say yes, 
that doesn't necessarily mean yes at all. <laughs> Guys, if you're not married, just take that as a lesson. Learn nothing else tonight. But I learned very early on, she's not here tonight, but she did hear it this morning, so those two are not related. Um, I would say to her, are you okay? Are we okay? And she'd come back and say, yes. And that was nowhere near the truth. I'd done something three weeks earlier that I'd have said her. No, it's not quite true. But just get into the habit with the Holy Spirit and say, are we doing okay? Are we okay? And I guarantee if you start to do that on a regular, on a regular persistent basis and start to tune your ears to what he wants to say to you, you will hear him speak to you. You will hear him if you ask him, are we doing okay? Secondly, I want to recognize that the Spirit's involvement in our lives is much more than when many of us were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Many of us here have a secondary experience of the Spirit. And in our terminology, we would call it the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And we are right to stress this. And I speak to you as someone who enjoys this experience. But sometimes... In our tradition, sometimes in Pentecostal charismatic circles, we have so stressed the relationship of the Holy Spirit with the baptism in the Holy Spirit that we have missed major functions of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do in our life. One of the things that we must not neglect or ignore that the Holy Spirit came into our lives when we got saved. The moment you gave your heart to Jesus, he came in. The Holy Spirit was there. We'll unpack that again in a moment. It isn't to do with some secondary experience or baptism in the Holy Spirit. Those are great and welcome and fantastic. And we stand as a Pentecostal church. Holy Spirit came into our lives the moment we gave our heart to Jesus. Undeniable truth. It was he who made you aware of the fact that you needed Jesus in the first place. And his commitment is from salvation as he began to gift and to transform you. He started to move in your life powerfully on that occasion. Later on, you may have experienced baptism in the Holy Spirit. They may have come as speaking in tongues. But it all started when you became a Christian. And the desire, I believe more and more, of the Holy Spirit is to say, I want to get so involved with you, and I don't want you to be weird. Does that sometimes worry you? I sometimes worry, if I get too committed to the things of God or too committed to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to turn weird. You may think I'm already weird. But I could introduce you to some really more weird people. And, and whilst I'm joking, but there is a sometimes, I really do have this fear that, man, if you talk too much about the Holy Spirit and Him talking to you 24-7, you'll get a bit weird. But I want to balance that. We don't want to lose the fact is that I do believe that he does want to be involved in our lives daily. He does want to drop something into your heart. He does want to drop something into your spirit. If I was a betting man, which I'm not, I would wager that most of us here this week have had something come into our mind that has prompted us to do something and we probably didn't do it. Oh, well, and I would say to you, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Say hello to that person. Give that person a smile. Go out of your way to do something of kindness. Holy Spirit is saying, I want to get involved with your life. Please don't lock me out. 
He wants to be involved in our lives. Also, I would like to say that I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit is more involved in our lives, as it were, in times of need than sometimes in the times of the dynamic. It's great when we laugh or cry and the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we fall over, do all that, whatever that means. But I believe that the Spirit is even more powerful in our lives in times of weakness, eclipse, or apparent defeat. I believe that he leans into us. I believe that he wants to speak to us in those times so that we can hear his voice. Sometimes I believe that God says to us through the Holy Spirit, I don't have a job for you to do. I just want to chat with you. I just want to chat with you. We did Mother's Day last night. And we sat, I think we met up about as a family, sort of 5.30. And through the whole evening, we just chatted. Some of it was nonsense. Some of it was an argument. Some of it was heated discussion. But it was family stuff. And we chatted. And it was great. And it's not as if we don't see each other regularly. But we're family. That's what we do. We talk. I sometimes think the Holy Spirit just says, I'd like to chat with you. Let's have a chat about what's going on in your life. Let me tell you what I think. Have you ever wondered why the Spirit is called holy? Well, it's obvious, isn't it, really? He's holy. He's sinless. He doesn't make mistakes. He's part of God. He's holy. No, it isn't. Nothing at all to do with that. In the ancient world, there were priests and priestesses who functioned in the temple, and they were called holy. They did not live holy lives. In fact, they lived incredibly immoral lives because in their setting, they functioned as sacred prostitutes. If you, in that day, in the Greek and Roman world, if you wanted a spiritual relationship, in this case, say, with the god Apollo, then you would have sex with a male prostitute. If you wanted to have a relationship with the goddess Diana, then you would have a sexual relationship with one of her female temple prostitutes. And that is just what happened. And the word that is used for holy is a word that if you've been around church for any length of time, you will know. And it's the Greek word is hagios, which means different or set apart. It means holy, which means set apart. I am set apart from you tonight because I'm facing this way, you are facing that way. It's as simple as that. Set apart and or different. Paul and Luke especially describe the spirit and they say, and they use the word hagios, and they are saying that he is set apart. He is holy. He is completely different to anything else. So what does that mean? Well, it means a lot in the context of first century eyes. You see, the spirits of the ancient world were called by a Greek word, a Greek word which is apatheia, from which we get the word apathy. The Greek gods and goddesses were fundamentally apathetic towards people. They did not care about people. They didn't care if they lived or died. And they would believe the thinking of the day is if they did care about them and they were angry, then they'd send a thunderstorm or they'd stir up the heavens, there'd be a storm. But basically, the Greek gods of the day, hear this, were apathetic. They did not care less about the people. And the New Testament writers are saying, we want to introduce you to someone who is 
completely different, who is completely set apart, who is not apathetic at all, who is so interested in your life that not only are we going to write it down and tell you about it, but God himself has sent one of the members of the Godhead to be with you. The word holy is used to say that this spirit, this part of the Godhead, is completely different to anything else that you have ever seen or known before. We know that he is holy in the traditional context. But what the writer is saying here in, in first century is, this God is completely different. He is so interested in your life, you wouldn't even begin to imagine it. He is so totally, totally different. And that's, again, the source of our encouragement. In the time left, I just want to look at a couple of verses in Ephesians. Paul was writing to a church in Ephesus that he had been with for three years. And I think it was probably his favorite church. He was very, very fond of this church. And Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, is a city dominated by a number of emotions. And central to that are insecurity and uncertainty. We referred to it briefly last week that most people died before they were 35. If they got through childbirth, 35 was an old-age pensioner in that context. Life was nasty. It was brutish. It was hard. And the people of Ephesus had no illusions. So they did two things. This is the context of what this has been said. They did two things. They were so scared of attack that this major port in the world, they built a 10-kilometer wall all the way around it so that they would not be attacked. They were defending themselves. So that the gods would never leave them, they had an eternal flame in the middle of the city that was an eternal flame. It never went out. They maintained it so that the gods would not go away, that they would not take their presence away. You go to modern-day Ephesus, or whatever it's called in Turkish, and you'll still see the remnants of the altar. You will still see the remnants of this 10-kilometer wall. Hugely insecure people. So Paul says to these marginalized Christians, numbering far less than these two sections over here, far less in number, that there's important things that he has to say to them, some important things that they have to learn. That in a place or in a world where everyone is fearful and insecure and uncertain, you need to realize that as Christians, you can have in your vocabulary words such as hope, safety, and security. These are the main things that are dominating your life because you have the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say this. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, a word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It says, you believed and you were sealed. You were sealed the moment you believed. Remember we said earlier, the Holy Spirit comes in at the moment of salvation. And as soon as we're saved, it says here, we are sealed. And the Greek word, is the, the, the tense is the aorist tense, which depicts something that says something wasn't true about you, but now is true. These people were not saved, they are now saved. 
They were not secure, now they are secure. They had no hope, now they've got hope. Their situation has changed, and they have been sealed. The moment you were sealed, the Holy Spirit came in. Whoa, I didn't ask him. Well, he's not asking you, he's coming, because he's been sent by the Godhead. That's part of his remit. He comes in, and he wants to seal us. And to us, a seal is a seal, really. But as soon as they would have read this in Ephesus, they would have known what a seal meant. And very quickly, it means three things. It says, when you see a seal on something, it signifies that it is owned. Many, many packages have been found in the Middle East and in uh, Asia Minor that have been found by archaeologists. And, and in them has been an impressed a seal, and it has someone's name on it. It's like the old-fashioned, you know, the old kings of England, and they used to seal something. That's what it was. And if you saw the seal, you would know that that thing was owned, or that object was owned, and it couldn't be touched. It ensured that you were protected. I have a seal on my finger that my wife knows that I am hers, and she wears one, that she is mine. That, in that sense, we are owned by each other. We have that seal. And instead of simply telling us the truth that we are sealed, the Holy Spirit has been, come, has been sent to seal your life. So invested in you is the Godhead that they have sealed your life and there's an ownership over your life that cannot be broken. Secondly, the seal indicates that you were protected. In the ancient city here of Ephesus, as I said earlier, it was the third biggest port in the, in, in the world in those days. If you wanted to buy something such as timber or clothing or pottery, you would go down to the harbor and you would inscribe your name in it. You would carve your name in gently, or if you had a seal, you would put a seal on it. And so everyone knew that that was protected. That person was in charge of that piece of item. You see, we read in the Gospels that when Jesus died, they sealed his tomb. And we know the big stone and the big rock was put in front. Yes, they did that. But the main seal wasn't the stone. On the, on the, on the rock, or the grave of Jesus, they would have also have put a seal that was made of some like cha- um, clay, moldable clay, and it would be pulled away by a child. A child could easily pull it off, but it had on the seal that it was the imperial office of Rome that was backing it up. So what they were saying is, you mess with the seal, and you have to deal with the person who put the seal there. You mess with the imperial office of Rome, then you are in trouble. What they were saying was, a powerful advocate stands behind the seal. So the first century Christian in Ephesus thinks, wow, we are sealed. We have a powerful advocate that stands by us in the time of trouble and difficulty and circumstances. And it's none other than the Holy Spirit. And God says to a marginalized people in Ephesus, And he says to us, who are so often on the wrong end of the stuff of life, you are mine, and I have given you my spirit, and anyone who touches with you will have to answer to me. Anything in heaven or under the earth, things present or things to come, anything that messes with you, I am the imperial power that stands behind that seal. They mess with you, they mess with me and they will lose. The minute you came to faith, 
He says, I'm coming in and I'm going to seal your life and you're owned and you're protected. And this is what they are reading. And it also means that they are valuable. <clears throat> Time is gone. I just want to close with one more thing. Musicians, come and join me, please. <clears throat> As we come to a conclusion, I want to see something in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access in one spirit to the Father. If we don't understand the context, if we don't understand what it meant to the Ephesians, we miss something of the enormity of what it means for us today. And the clue here is the word access. It's a word that is used in relation to something that was in existence in the first century and other centuries but of that time. To live in Ephesus was to live in a place that had huge inequalities. And the rich had all the good stuff, the powerful had all the good stuff. 90% of people were marginalized. But in the middle of Ephesus, the people would meet. If we put the next slide up. This is central Ephesus. In the middle, or at the bottom left, is something that is called the Agora. And it was in all major Greek cities, but it is called the Agora. This one in Ephesus is about 110 square meters. Where, and in the Agora, everything of importance happened. We don't have an equivalent in the Western world. We never had. But it was the place of commerce. It was the place of education. It was the place of intellectual debate, where politics took place where the judiciary was ex- where existed, where everything that happened to do with the stuff of life and future and decisions took place in the Agora. Just move it on. Thanks, James. And to go into the Agora, you had to go through one of these. And all these things took place in this place called the Agora. But the ultimate place that made decisions in this Agora, where all the other decisions were made, the ultimate place was something called the Ecclesia. And most of us will probably say we've heard that name. The Ecclesia is the name that the New Testament uses to describe the church, the Christian community. But the Ecclesia is not a Christian word, it's not a religious word, nothing to do with church. But the Ecclesia was in the middle of the Agora where all the ultimate decisions were made that affected people's lives. And to get into the Agora, you had to go through the gates that we just put up. But the entrance was limited, and rules were tight, and you really, really didn't get in. The marginalized had no place. The Christians were locked out. This is the context of what Paul is saying when you have access. They're thinking of the Agora. They're thinking of the Ecclesia. The place that they have no right to be, the world says, but Paul says you're going to have access today. I close with this. There is a place because we have the Holy Spirit, because he is our advocate. There is a place, there is an ecclesia where everything important happens today. And you may have been locked out of this place, but there is a place that we all have access to through Jesus Christ and because of the Holy Spirit. And that place 
where all the decisions in regards to life and death and future are made is the throne room of the King of Kings. And we have access through Jesus and we are brought there with the Holy Spirit. And for a people who once were left out and marginalized, friends, we have a hope that is beyond comparison. We have a hope that is beyond words. We cannot describe it because we have access to the throne room, to the heart of God, and he, the creator of the heavens and earth, he who decides what happens, he who leaves nothing to chance but is in control of absolutely everything, we have access to him. And so Paul is saying to these people, you have a hope, you have a security, you don't need to be fearful because locked out of there, don't worry. We have an even greater place where we have access to Friends, today we cannot be closer to God than we are. We have that Holy Spirit with us. The member of the Godhead has been sent to be with us. Yes, he wants to do things in our life. Yes, he wants to change us into the image of, of, his, of his son, Jesus Christ. But the Spirit is constantly reminding God who we are. Those are my children. Those are your children. Those are ours. They believe in Jesus constantly. God doesn't need it, but we are constantly being brought before God. And it's an incredible place of security and safety. Even though we walk through sometimes the shadow of death, we are never forgotten by God. And our hope lies in the fact that he always is aware of our situation. I want to close with this verse. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.